This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is True Crime XS. The saga of Larry Eiler as it relates to the I-70 Strangler, uh, I would say that I could say this pretty easily that, I mean, it can't possibly get any weirder than how all of this ends up shaking out for Larry Eiler. Would you agree with that? It, like, the whole thing is weird. That's what I'm saying. Like, it can't be, there's nothing, I don't, I don't know that I've ever seen a case this strange. I mean, it, it has... It has several components that make it uniquely strange, yes. Where we kind of left off, we were talking about the murder of uh, Daniel Bridgers in, uh, he's an uptown kid, basically north side of Chicago. And we were discussing the fact that uh, Larry had changed up everything he'd been doing previously. And he basically had, he had almost gotten away with a murder. And then he changed everything. He, and this kid ends up in his apartment. Uh, his, the remains are found in the dumpsters outside the apartment. And Larry is essentially uh, arrested and charged after he's caught red-handed. I feel like he like had essentially gotten away with like quite a few murders. Yeah, I guess I'm really just trying to express that he was on the hook for a murder that he got off on a lot of constitutional nuance where cops clearly violated the U.S. Constitution and it worked in Larry's favor, if there is such a thing. Right. Um, Yeah, I don't know that nuance is the right word, but yes, um, there were technicalities, right? Yeah. Legal technicalities that occurred that rendered critical information and evidence in the cases that they were investigating against him useless to law enforcement and useless to the state in trying to prosecute him, right? Correct. The prosecutors looking at the autopsy of of Daniel Bridges' murder, they decided they were going to charge him in such a way that they could go after the death penalty. So to legally speak the death penalty, they had to develop a theory and an appropriate circumstance that would make capital punishment easy for a jury to come to that decision. So they stack the charges on him. They hit him with murder. They hit him with aggravated kidnapping. They hit him with unlawful restraint. And they hit him with concealment of Bridges' body. Larry gets brought to trial on July 1st, 1986. So there's a significant amount of time that's lapsed in here. Just to refresh everybody, Daniel's murder is August 19th, 1984. So he gets tried in Cook County, Illinois. And he enters a formal plea of not guilty. He had no money at the time. Everything that he had was belonged to other people, basically. So he was considered to be indigent. And he gets assigned 
two public defenders, Claire Hilliard and Tom Allen. David Shippers, he's from the other case where Larry's rights were violated. He comes on board and tells the judge, who is Joseph Urso, he tells the judge that he is going to offer his legal services on behalf of Larry Eiler pro bono, which is basically it's his way of doing it voluntarily and with no money. Everybody tells Larry that he is not going to testify on his behalf. And the opening statement to the jury in July 1986, Mark Rakoski, who's one of the prosecutors, he outlines the physical and circumstantial evidence that they're going to use to convict Larry. He tells how Larry has basically been pretty close to getting away with this, but that the janitor had in his inquiry, whether or not, you know, somebody was dumping, illegally dumping trash. Uh, he, he is the one who caught Larry and the prosecutors, the other prosecutors, Rick Stock, by the way, Rakoski and Stock, they point out that Daniel Bridges would have been thrown away. His body would have been buried in a landfill and no one would have known what would happen to him. In the opening statements, he all, uh, Mark Rakoski also references a, a remark that Larry had made to one of the janitors who had asked him what he was disposing in the garbage receptacle as he's putting these uh, the bags into the, the crusher, basically. And Larry had remarked that he was just throwing some shit away that had been in his apartment. So David Shippers handle, handles the opening statement for the defense. And he argues that the only evidence proving that Larry is in, uh, involved in this murder was that he had handled the bags that contained the body. And that there were eyewitnesses who had observed him disposing of these bags in, this, uh, in the apartment garbage. But that none of the witnesses could actually prove that he had murdered Daniel Bridges. David actually poses the idea that two other men had been within Larry's apartment between August 19th and 21st, one of whom had spent a great deal of time there. And he also uh, related to the charge of aggravated kidnapping. David Chippers is basically stating Bridges may have entered Larry's apartment voluntarily. There was no evidence that he had been inside Larry's truck. There was no evidence that existed that indicated Larry had forced Bridges into the apartment. And they had gone looking for materials in Larry's truck with a forensic examination, but that examination hadn't shown anything related to Daniel Bridges in there. And what we have known previously is Larry tends to leave around a lot of evidence. That's not something they bring up in this opening statement because that's the last thing you want to do. So the first witness that the prosecution brings up is Larry's father figure, Robert Little. Now, Robert Little testified that he was with Larry between August 17th and August 19th. But he claimed that he had returned to his condo 10, 15 p.m., on the evening of August the 19th, which would have been the evening of Daniel's murder. 
Dr. Robert Stein, the medical examiner, testified on behalf of the prosecution on July the 2nd. He said that there was extensive torture and mutilation that had been inflicted upon Daniel and that it was both uh, before and after Daniel's death. He called it, uh, this phrase that pops up from time to time, one of the worst cases he had ever seen. He added the pattern in the depth of the serrations and the dismemberment of Daniel's body matched hacksaw blades that were recovered in Larry's apartment. When the defense got a hold of him, he did admit to Tom Allen on the defense team that he had discovered Daniel had alcohol and cocaine in his blood. And this was used to suggest that maybe a kid, because he is a kid, had willingly entered Larry's apartment. Right. And I've thought all along that he did. And it doesn't change my opinion about the fact that there is a certain point in time where the consensual visit becomes kidnapping. Right. Um, And to me, like, this is some really strange stuff to be presenting to undermine that. Yeah. I always have to, this screams like strategy to me. Right. Yeah, they're setting something up for the appeal. Is that what you mean? Well, or they're trying to uh, persuade a jury of certain elements. Because I think most of the time in capital cases, at least I would say 80s is kind of borderline, but at least more recently, so not the ancient ones, but in capital cases, it actually becomes this thing where not guilty isn't necessarily the very first thing that you're aiming for. Right. Undermining the capital offense, what makes the uh, trial a capital trial, becomes important because you're actually trying to save your, your client's life, right? So In you're this- thinking that if they, if, they can, if they can shove off the aggravated kidnapping. Right. Um, that's, I feel like... Part of what made this a capital case was the fact that he's also charged with aggravated kidnapping and unlawful restraint. And so they're, they're attacking those elements because they're trying to lessen impact that those elements have on a jury as far as like him being put to death. Because to me, the fact that the victim has cocaine and alcohol in his system, it means very, very little given the outcome of the case, right? Yes. In fact, it's almost like, you know, why are you bringing this up? And so the only thing I can think of is they're going to try and derail the aggravating factors of the crime. Yeah, I I agree with you there. They're trying to mitigate what happened here down. Like, I've seen defenses where in a situation like this, you know, they'll sort of concede the concealment aspect of it, which they do here a little bit. But then they'll say, you know, this was actually a fight. And then the, the then that fight ends with the body laying on the floor and, and the defendant panicked to get rid of the body. So they'll try and they'll try and get it down to, you know, in some cases they're trying, they're aiming for like a second degree murder or what would be a third degree murder, like a a, a voluntary or involuntary manslaughter. Or just not a capital murder. 
Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I've seen it in other situations where the, the capital is not even on the table. So I totally agree with you that that's the mitigation here. They don't want the death penalty on the table at the end of this. But it is here, right? Because it, it's absolutely. established beforehand. And so it actually becomes this thing where instead of aiming for, you know, acquittal or finding him not guilty, you're actually like, you're taking the licks necessary to be taken just to save your client's life. Um, and I feel like that's a, an important distinction to be made. But to me, it seems like 100% strategy. I have no idea what, uh, beyond the strategy to make it uh, less of a aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint type of first degree murder. I have no idea what the defense thought that they were doing, having the um, doctor concede on the stand that there was alcohol and cocaine in the victim's blood or in his system at the time of his death. So to me, that's where my mind goes immediately. Oh, they're just trying to uh, derail this, right? Yeah, that's where my mind would go as well. They then bring up a, one of the custodians from the apartment building. So this custodian named Al, he testifies that he had seen Larry making quite a few trips to the storage lockers area of the apartments on August the 20th. And when he spoke to Larry about it, Larry said that he was, quote, getting tools for a job. Several hours later, same custodian saw Larry again making multiple trips to the garbage area. It's like a, uh, it's a, it's a bricked in area that holds the dumpsters. And this guy saw Larry make at least three trips to that area. A couple days later on July 7th, the prosecution brings in John, Larry's uh, longtime lover who was married. And he states that he had talked to Larry three times between 8.45 and 11.25 p.m. on August the 19th, and then again at 2.45 a.m. on August the 20th, only to be informed not to come to Larry's apartment. The excuse that Larry gave was that Robert Little was there. Did you know, um, this was interesting to me, um, as a side note, John... Uh, was only 25 years old at the time of the trial. Uh, I, I did. Re I realized that, yes. Robert Little was 48 at the time of the trial. I didn't realize. I actually thought he was older. I, I thought there was, they were, um, I thought he was in his 50s. I thought that they both were older. I was, and so I was very surprised. I was really surprised that John was 25. And then I was surprised that Robert was 48. Um, let's see. How old was Larry? 30-something? 30 32? Yeah. Well, the trial is going to be in 86. So right. Larry's 52. So, yeah, 30. Uh, He's 32. 34. Oh, at the time of the murder. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, 32 right. at the time of the murder, 34 at the time of the trial. Yeah. Right. And so, um, Sorry. Uh, I was just reading specifically what was put, but yeah, this is him at the time of the murder and then the other are at the time of the trial. And so, you know, uh, you're looking 32 to 48, you're talking about 16 year age difference, right? And that's with little. Yeah. And then uh, with John, Larry is actually about seven. No, there's that gap there uh, as far as uh, little being older and uh, John being younger. Correct. So pulling from uh, 
the sources for this. I, I realized I didn't say them. You can actually find this on the Wayback Machine. And it's literally just, if you look up the people versus Larry Eiler, E-Y-L-E-R, you can read a lot about Larry. So I thought this part was interesting. John knew Larry and Robert's routine enough to know that Larry calling at 2.45 a.m. and saying that Robert was still there was really weird. And he knew this because they had this in-sync routine where Robert would go back to Terre Haute on Sundays. So they they were almost, I don't know how to like, sound. It sounds so strange to have your lifestyle set up in a way that everybody knows like who's with who when, right? I don't understand anything about this. Um, it's very confusing to me. And That's it's very, it's very confusing. They had, they, the, uh, Robert and John had issues with one another. So they were both aware of the fact that um, Larry was seeing them, but they both had problems with it. It's so weird. Yeah. Um, and Robert is paying Larry's rent, right? And John is his longtime buddy. Partner, partner buddy? I don't, I don't well, know. I mean, I'm not making fun of it. It's just an interesting arrangement that's gone on for so many years. It that, is, like, and it seems like there's a lot of push and pull between the two through Larry as far as jealousy and whom he's choosing to spend time with over the other one? A little bit, yeah. Okay. So John testified that while I was talking to Larry at the early morning phone call, he told Larry, I'm coming over. I'm going to be there in just a few minutes. And Larry stated, "I don't do that, please. So Larry agreed that he would leave and go to John's house. And when he got there, John noted that it was very clear that Larry had been, uh, he had cleaned up. So he wasn't interested in having sex with John. And that made John believe that Larry had been with another man. Robert would later confirm some sections of John's testimony, although he insisted that he had left Larry's apartment what would have been about 15 minutes before Daniel was last known to have been seen alive. And this comes up later, but Robert Little's attorney, he brings up a tax receipt that proved that Robert had paid his property property taxes on his condominium at noon on August the 20th. And so it wasn't due until October. So there were all these questions about why did he do this? And Little claimed he, that he just had the money sitting there and he wanted to go ahead and pay it off. And that's why he had gone to do it. So... David Chippers, he continues trying to get a little bit of reasonable doubt in the minds of the jury who's looking at Daniel Brzee's murder and looking at Larry Eiler. He gets John to admit that Larry being disinterested in sex may have been because he had been having sex with, you know, a normal adult lover who consented in his apartment. And that that could have been the reason that Larry had said, no, don't come over here and showed up on his own on August 19th and the 20th. Shippers also referenced how strange it was that Robert Little had left there and gone to Terre Haute to pay a bill not due for months, adding that it was odd that he had chosen to pay this particular bill in person where the record showed that he typically mailed checks in on his bills. Right, so he was basically implying that Robert Little was 
creating or crafting an alibi for himself, right? Yeah, that's what he's saying. And so, again, I feel like that's strategy, again, because if they can just sort of push a little bit of it off, it undermines the capital uh, characteristics of the case. Yeah. But it creates, like, a whole lot of controversy. It does, yeah. To round everything out, the prosecution brings up um, a forensic tech named Marian Caparuso. And Marian Caparuso testifies that there was no semen found on or around Daniel Briggs' body. And this was to support what the prosecution was angling at here, that this was not a situation where he had brought Daniel in for any other purpose, like sexual relations or whatever, but simply to simply to torture and murder him. On cross-examination, Caparuso said that some of the blood stains that they found uh, that they were that were retrieved from an ashtray in Larry's apartment, they didn't belong to Daniel, but they also didn't belong to Larry, and that they didn't know about any other individual that would have been present August 19th through the 21st who had had their samples of blood taken for comparison to those blood stains. And that's sort of where the prosecution rounds out its case. And I don't really read a whole lot into that, if that's the only blood, like just two stains on a, actually, I don't know how many it was. Um, because like you were saying, like there was so much blood involved in this, right? Yeah, I don't, like I am sure there's stuff that's been missed here, but they clearly examine the hell out of the supply. Right, and just to have... I, I just am not quite sure what they're getting at, except, again, undermining the capital nature of this case. I feel like that would be relevant. Yeah, I, I think it's I think there's a mixture of reasonable doubt and mitigating the capital that's going on for sure. But that's the last thing they really draw out. On July the 9th, everything starts to wind down in this trial. Prosecution and the defense, they deliver the closing arguments. And they out the, the way the prosecution goes is they outline the injuries that were inflicted upon Daniel. They continue to reiterate the premeditated nature of this. And they point out all of the very great links that Larry goes to, to conceal this crime and what he does to the body. After the prosecution closes out their case, David Chipper presents to the jury, like he tells them he's just going to put the facts together and they're going to understand what happened. And he starts out with, what is the evidence where Danny Bridges was kidnapped? And he references, I think he makes a mistake, but he talks about Daniel Bridges having welt marks on his wrists and his ankles. And he points out that, that Larry Eiler was into bondage and that Bridges could have, quote, willingly, end quote, submitted to this act. Again, I'm, I don't see how that's completely relevant. Do you? He's saying that he's using more of this to, to point out that, like, maybe. He wasn't unlawfully restraining him. I guess that's the mitigation we're looking at here, that Bridges was into it or being paid for it. And that this had nothing yeah. to do. This had nothing to do with the kidnapping part. That's all. Right. That's and all. isn't that strange? It is strange. Okay. David dives into the testimony that John provided about Robert Little. And he tries to point out that Larry might not have been the killer. He points out that, like, 
the authorities kind of listened to what Robert Little had to say. And he kind of gets distracted by this crazy tax bill in his closing argument. Ultimately, the prosecution comes up, they have a brief rebuttal, and the state rests. And then the judge goes through all of the the jury charge and the jury instructions and sends them out to, to deliberate and reach a verdict. Takes them three hours. They come back. They find Larry guilty of murder, un, unlawful restraint, aggravated kidnapping, and concealment of Daniel's body. The, the trial moves into the penalty phase. It takes a little while for them to get there. In September, both of the sides in this case outline arguments related to what sentence should be imposed upon Larry. Those arguments take one court day. And the prosecution does a pretty good job bringing in people who had been assaulted by Larry between 1978 and 1981. I think they brought in five individuals. One of them had been left for dead for sure. And all of those guys had definitely encountered the violent side of Larry. Outlining the similarities in what Larry did to them and what Larry did to Bridges, he makes a pretty good case for the death sentence. In fact, he's quoted as saying, there's nothing, Your Honor, that can mitigate the tears and agony that Larry Eiler has caused his entire life. 33 years, he's caused more tears than anyone. A sentence other than death will be giving him his freedom. So multiple family members from the uh, from Larry's family are brought in to be character witnesses. And David Shippers outlines his belief that, like, this is not a death penalty case. They bring up a lot of mitigating factors here, but they don't make a great case. And ultimately, they try really hard to get the judge to spare Larry's life. So the judge decides from everything he could see, there is no other um, sentence for Larry than death. So Judge Urso sentences Larry to death by lethal injection. And he gives a scathing judgment on all of this. Now, it would be a couple of years before some different things come up here. Uh, and we talked about this briefly before. So I guess we'll, we'll kind of hit on it now while we're here. Uh, there were so so basically Larry goes to death row. He stays there. Now he had some serious mental illness going on. The final disclosure, if you read through, like I think it's Padwin has a really good confession article on on Larry, but also other killers, and he talks about uh, he talks about his mental illness there. Overall. Larry was a control murderer or believed to be a control murderer, but he was also believed to be suffering from severe cluster B personality disorder. Uh, specifically, he was an emotionally unstable uh, personality disorder. He appeals this case and Kathleen Zellner gets involved in 1990. She gets appointed by the Illinois appellate defenders to represent Eiler in these ongoing appeals. The biggest thing that comes up in the appeal is that Larry contends that he he took apart the body, he dismembered uh, Daniel's body, and he 
in addition to dismembering him, he disposed of the body. But the actual murder had been committed by Robert Little while he wasn't there. Now, they point out that the prosecution at trial did not rebut this or fight the assertion that Daniel might have been killed by Robert Little. This appeal further said that Robert Little had picked Daniel up and driven him to Larry Eiler's apartment and that no one was ever able to actually corroborate Robert Little's alibi. And they also pointed out that because of how Robert Little's story went, no one had ever looked at his car for a forensic examination. So the appeal, that first appeal gets heard and gets dismissed. There's an execution date set for Larry on March 14, 1990. November 5, 1990, Kathleen Zellner comes in and she is representing him in the ongoing appeals. Now, the thing about appeals in this type of case is the appeals can be against the sentence and the appeals can also be against what else happened in the trial, all the technical things. Then you get to a point where you could be asking for like, you could be filing different petitions to try and get in front of different federal courts. This case is sort of a disaster that never ends. So same time that Kathleen Zellner comes on this case, a prosecutor named Larry Thomas is in Vermilion County up in Indiana. It's in the Western part of Indiana. He obtains the physical evidence retrieved against Larry related to the Ralph Calise case. And he intends to present the evidence before an Indiana grand jury to determine whether or not they could charge Larry Eiler with a different murder. And that is the December 1982 murder of Stephen Egan, which we talked about earlier on. Larry finds out that there is a pending indictment in Stephen Egan's murder. He agrees that he's going to confess to what he did there. Although... He insists that this particular murder had been committed with the assistance of Robert Little. So Larry agrees to confess. He agrees to testify against Robert Little on the condition that he be given a fixed term of imprisonment as opposed to another death sentence. His offer is accepted. And Larry and his attorney put together a 17-page confession, December 4th, 1990. On December 13th, 1990, Larry pleads guilty to Stephen's murder, and he testifies that Robert Little had been a knowing and willing participant in this murder, and that's when the polygraph happens. Larry receives a sentence of 60 years imprisonment on December the 28th, 1990. And it's to be served concurrently with his existing sentence. At this point in time, Robert Little is 53 years old. He ends up being arrested on December the 18th, and he gets formally charged with Stephen's first-degree murder. And he is facing a sentence of 60 years in prison if he's convicted. The following month, Kathleen Zellner starts shopping a deal on behalf of Larry. And the deal is Larry's going to confess to 20 homicides committed across 10 counties in Illinois and Indiana. If the state of Illinois will commute his death sentence 
to a sentence of life imprisonment without parole. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think of that? I don't really know what I think of that. I feel like um, anytime there's a, this is post-conviction. This is a negotiation for a sentence to be commuted. And I never like those types of negotiations. Uh, I don't think that they are in anyone's best interest. And the reason I say that is he's been sentenced uh, to death for one murder, right? Why on earth would we allow him to confess to 20 murders and give him life in prison? However, in the interest of, you know, bringing closure to the victim's families, you know, whoever has the power to do that, it's completely up to them. I'm, I'm actually all for life in prison without parole in cases like this, where they have a lot of information to give us. I'll just say it that way. I, I, I'm, I'm in favor of that. I actually feel like, um, this is a kind of a turning point for, um, Kathleen Zellner. And I think that she found herself, uh, having been appointed to someone who was guilty. Yeah. And I think she may have been, trying to uh, kind of strategize in a way that she could deal with the situation, which, I mean, I guess that's pretty, you know, it's, I don't know how professional that is, but I think it was like sort of a coping mechanism for her, but it's an interesting way that at this point in time, you have to be, you have to wonder like, well, is he confessing? Are they just compiling a list and he's going, yes, 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 whatever. Right. Uh, we don't actually know exactly what was happening there. Um, but I do think it had a lot to do with him having that particular attorney at that point. She puts a timeline on it and says that, if you know, you don't take up in January 91, then he's going to take a secret to his grave. So Authorities in eight of 10 jurisdictions said, do it. Give him the prison sentence. And one of the ninth, the ninth jurisdiction, the, the one of the holdouts, they indicated that they might be interested. But the official response from Cook County, the Cook County State's attorney at the time, Jack O'Malley, he rejected Larry's offer, which I think was a mistake, but that's just me. And I actually think, this is around the time that Kathleen Zellner and people like Jack O'Malley really started trying to make names for themselves. That's, that's kind of what's happening here in some of these situations. Next up in, um, in the Larry saga here, in April of 1991, Robert Little gets brought to trial on the charge of murdering Stephen Agan. The gist of this was that... Larry says Stephen Agan and he were part of a regular routine where Larry would bring someone to Robert Little's house to have sex with them. And that Robert was sort of, you know, joining in and he was photographing what was going on. And then Agan had agreed to participate in a little like pornographic scenario and they would give him some money. Ultimately, the allegation was that because of Larry's testimony, Robert Little had been the one to actually kill Stephen Agan. Although, even according to Larry, Larry set up most of it. Robert's attorneys come in, and essentially what happens is when Robert's attorney are defending him, they set it up and say, look, Larry's trying to get revenge on Robert Little. 
That's all this is. And the jury buys it. At the end of the day, uh, the prosecution loses this one. And it takes the jury seven hours, but on April 17th, they, they kick this. And they basically say, he didn't have anything to do with this. What do you think? Oh, well, I was just going to say, we don't have a really good look at whether or not Robert Little had anything to do with this. My gut says Robert Little knew more than he let on. But I don't know that he was actively participating in this because I, I, I have trouble. We've already talked about this. I have trouble with the whole accomplice situation in these types of murders. Right. It seems like highly unlikely, right? Yeah. I don't think you can. I don't know. I don't know how this could go. Well, it doesn't seem to me like the pressure applied to to Robert Little. It never made him speak out against Larry, right? Yeah. Not that I saw. Uh, one of the, which we may get to it, uh, as far as one of the points of the appeal that Kathleen Zellner brought to light, it may have been post, it may have been after Larry had died, but one of the things she brought up was um, that Robert had paid the attorney who had made a big deal about donating his services pro bono during the uh, during Danny's trial, the trial for the murder of uh, Daniel Bridges, right? Yeah. And so that became sort of a big deal as far as, like, that would be, like, straight-up misconduct. Uh, and, you know, I think her angle was to get the conviction overturned based on that. Uh, that's a technicality. But one of the things that came up that I thought was really interesting in his confession, in his statement, it really made me think that he really was just getting back at Robert and that it was all garbage. I think there's too many commonalities in all these murders that seem to point back to Larry for me. That well, I, and, Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, I, I have trouble picturing an accomplice being involved, but I do believe a confidant could know about these murders. Right. And well, he says that um, he describes how he committed the murders uh, and he he's very it, it's bad. Uh, he says that immediately just prior to stabbing his victims, he pressed the blade of his knife against their abdomen and told him to make peace with God. And then he claimed that he never had sex with any of his victims, which I believe. And he frequently had given his victims T-shirts to Robert Little to use in Robert's masturbatory fantasies. And I thought that that was actually very telling in that more than likely Robert... Knew the whole thing. Well, but I don't think that he had anything to do with it. And I think that up until a certain point, he may not have even believed him. Yeah, okay, let's get to that part because you're kind of going there already. So all this takes place in 91. Robert Little is off the hook for the death of Steve Hagen. We're not going to hear much about Larry for a couple of years. And then Larry is going to die. He's going to die of AIDS-related complications uh, in March of 1994. At the time of his death, Kathleen Zellner said that she had been preparing a further appeal disputing her client's conviction in Daniel Bridges' murder. 
that appeal had been in various stages. I don't know exactly where it was. I've seen somebody say it was pending, but that's not what it looks like to me. Kathleen Zellner said she was confident that Larry was going to be let off the hook for that one. The appeal itself was actually, this is this whole thing. Um, it was ma- it, it had maintained that David Chippers had a conflict of interest because he had received a payment of, I think it's almost 20 grand, right? 15 or 20 grand from Robert yeah. Little to assist in the, in the, defense for and, it, Larry and it's Iowa. pointed out that he specifically told the judge that he was doing it pro bono and offering his services free of charge and uh the contention from uh kathleen zellner was that uh the fact that he had been paid by someone else to especially someone else that had a potential interest in Larry being found guilty. If you believe the narrative that was spun as far as uh, Larry actually being responsible. Right. Yeah. Um, That presents a conflict. Yeah. This kind of lingers out there. Now realize there's not a lot they can do about Robert Little at this point, at least not with Steve Agan. And I think if they were to go after him for Daniel Bridges, they would have needed Larry. But Larry's died, and this appeal was pending. Kathleen Zellner is like, she's also kind of, I don't know that she's wrong on some of the things she's saying. I'm just not, she's definitely doing it in press conferences as, as opposed to like, I think that might have been the frustration of not being able to see it through with Larry dying. Right. And I think something that's important to remember is during Larry's trial, no matter how much they point the finger at Robert Little, like Robert Little's still not on trial. Right. At the end of the day, if the jury, even if the jury believed that Robert Little had done it, it's he isn't being found guilty at the end of that trial. Right. Right. Kathleen Zellner does one of those batshit crazy things in true crime history. Two days after Larry dies on March 8th, she calls a press conference and she reveals the names and or descriptions of 17 individuals that her client confessed to having personally murdered and named four other individuals that Larry claimed to have murdered with the assistance of Robert Little. In the press conference, Kathleen Zellner said an unnamed individual still living in Indiana, but everybody knew it was Robert Little. The four victims that relate to Robert Little are a guy named Stephen Crockett, the Stephen Hagen case, and two unidentified Caucasian males, one who was murdered in late May 1983 and the other who was murdered in April of 1984. At this point, Zellner takes the opportunity to insist that Larry Eiler did not kill Daniel Bridges. She just says that he killed all these people and says that he didn't kill Daniel Bridges. According to Kathleen, she thought that Larry was an emotionally insecure individual who viewed Robert as a father figure and that that had left Larry the murderer vulnerable to manipulation. And that Robert Little used him as a means of facilitating his own access to young men uh, for sex in return for the the financial support that uh, Larry received from him. 
I feel like that. Um, I feel like Kathleen Zellner had a really hard time coping with what she did for this guilty man, and this is her way of coping with it. Uh, paying penance. I don't know how you would say it. And it's interesting because, in theory, this should lend cr- more credence to the fact that oh, well, he gave up all these murders he did. So he would have just said he did it if he had done it. But I maintain, I feel like he's really sticking it. I think this is drama for the sake of drama. Well, I agree. And it it's strange to me. Um, it, it Now, she made history because she, like, two days later, with the blessing of her now deceased client, she gives up a list, right? Yeah. And, and that's almost unheard of because it does violate, you know, uh, attorney-client privilege. And most attorneys won't do it just because... You know, it's it, it's a reputation type thing. But he gave consent for her to do this. And I, I have a feeling she convinced him because she wanted, uh, with a case of this magnitude, um, a killer with this many victims. She instantly became a super lawyer. Well, she did, but I, I don't know that she did it for that reason. I think this weighed heavily on her. I think the entire situation where like the law, where law enforcement messed up and he got off, you know, initially, I think that all of that weighed on, uh, I feel like his attorney did a really good job here in the interest of justice. Cause this guy was guilty, right? Yeah. Um, there's no question about it. The, I can only imagine the, the chaos that his personal relationships brought upon him as far as like his longtime companion that was married and then his father figure lover that paid for everything for him. Yeah. And I feel like um, he harbored a lot of different um, feelings towards uh, his position in this very strange triangle and I do think that it was vengeful. I think pet, like trying to put it on, trying to put it on Robert was a way of getting at him. I would tend but, to agree with that. But I don't know. I mean, it is entirely possible. I felt like when he said that he gave him the shirts, though, that he was probably aware of it. But I don't think he participated because that would be a really strange thing to say. Oh, I was there. I let this guy use my apartment to kill this kid. And then I disposed of the body. Well, from her perspective, here's what Kathleen Zellner says. She said that Larry had been diagnosed with AIDS in 1991. He knew when he testified at Steve. Uh, the, the Steve Hagan murder trial for Robert Little was the defendant there. He knew that he was dying and she believed that Larry was truthful and he had no incentive to lie to anyone. She does mention that there are these four individuals who she believes were tied to both Robert Little and to Larry. So Larry lays out that he typically would lure his victims with promises of drugs, alcohol, money, or transport. He's not kidnapping these people, which, you know, we kind of knew that. And uh, like you said earlier, prior to stabbing a few of his victims, he'd press the blade against their abdomen and, you know, he'd let them know, make your peace with God. Uh, He claimed that he had never engaged in sex with his victims and that he frequently had given his victims T-shirts to Robert Little to use in masturbatory fantasies. uh, Kathleen also went on to say that 
Eiler had begun compiling a list of his victims shortly after she had been appointed his legal representative in November of 1980 in an effort to obtain a plea bargain where his sentence would be commuted to one of life in prison. This is when he was basically shopping the list. Um, but he did authorize her to publicly release his confessions after death with this explanation being that the families of his victims would know he had confessed to the murders of their relatives, which is all this feels like control freakiness to me, but is what it is. Uh, so in this confession, he revealed he had murdered 21 teenage boys and young men between 1982 and 1984. And he was assisted by Robert Little and four of these murders. Allegedly, he denied having anything to do with the murder of Daniel Bridges, but admitted to dismembering and disposing of the body. And investigators believe that Larry is probably responsible for two other homicides committed in Wisconsin and Kentucky, which we've mentioned along the way here. In this formal confession, Larry claimed to have committed the murders as a means of relieving frustrations he had internally uh, after fights with John. And these were his way of achieving a sense of relief. Most of the victims were hitchhikers and individuals that he encountered by happenstance and on occasion uh, young men who were selling sex. Each victim would be plied with alcohol and sedatives and driven to a remote location where Larry would wait for a good moment to, to bind them, to handcuff them. And then he would overpower them, gag them, blindfold them, bind them hand and foot. Uh, then he would bludgeon them and lash out at the victim before murdering them. Of these 20 victims to which he confessed, 10 of these are in Indiana, 10 are in Illinois. According to Larry, one of these victims, uh, which is someone he killed in April of 1984, has never been found. And I don't know if that's still true or not. I tried to look that up, but I couldn't tell exactly what he was referencing. He basically claimed that two victims had been murdered in the apartment. And... There are records of an anonymous phone call made to emergency services, which say that a severed human hand had been found in a garbage receptacle behind the Rogers Park apartment in April of 1984. But there's no further report of any kind of investigation there. It's really disturbing, too, because that's after um, he'd been released uh, based on the uh, constitutional technicalities. But before the, Daniel Bridges' murder, right? But before, yeah, before his, because his murder was in August, in August. of 1984. Yeah. And so how many murders did he commit in that apartment? How well, many times had he gotten away with it? Yeah. So, okay. In April 2021, one of the victims who had been discovered alongside the oak tree the, where it was split by race, uh, in Lake Village, Indiana, they were positive, positively identified as having been uh, John Brandenburg Jr. out of Chicago. Another victim from Jasper County, Indiana, was positively identified as William Lewis of Peru, Indiana. Another victim was identified in 2023, uh, also from that Oak Tree farmhouse in Lake Village. That was Keith Bibbs. He was identified in July 2023. Now, he's on the hook for Jay Reynolds and Eric Hansen, but he says he didn't do that. Or, or they're not, uh, it's not that he says he didn't do it, it's that he didn't confess to them. Uh, three of his victims remain unidentified, the body of one of which has never been found. That's the guy from the apartment. 
the body of one of these unidentified decedents was discovered in Indiana, and another one was found in Illinois. Each identified decedent can be found by the like date of discovery. I think they're all in NamUs. One of those entries uh, in the the confession list are one of these unidentified people. The gist of this is he is believed to have killed Stephen Malcolm Crockett, 19, in October of 1982. Uh, Edgar Anthony Underkolfer, who was uh, 25 or or 26 in October of 1982. John Johnson, November of 1982, he was 25. William Joseph Lewis is 19 in November of 1982. Stephen Agan, who was 23, and that would have been in December of 1982. John Lee Roach, that's December 22nd, 1982. He was 21 years old. David Block, December 30th, 1982. Um, he was 22 years old. Irvin Gibson, who was 16, now it's January 24th, 1983. John Bartlett was 19 when he was killed on March 2nd, 1983. Michael Christopher Bauer was 22 when he was killed on March 8, 1983. Richard Arthur Wayne Jr. was 17 when he was killed on March 20th, 1983. J. Trulin Reynolds uh, was 29 years old when he was killed on March 22nd, 1983. He's the Kentucky victim. Jimmy T. Roberts was 18 years old on May 4th of 1983 when he was killed. Daniel Scott McNeevy. I uh, was 21 years old when he died on May 7th, 1983. Richard Edward Bruce Jr. was 25 years old on May 18th, 1983. John Brandenburg Jr. was 19 years old on May 29th, 1983 when he was murdered. Keith Lavelle Bibbs was 16 years old when he was killed on July 11th of 1983. Ralph Calise was killed on August 31st, 1983, and he was 28 years old. Uh, Eric Hansen, well, he's from Wisconsin. He was 18 years old. He was killed on September 27, 1983. Daniel Bridges was 16 when he was killed, August 19, 1984. I never find in here how we get to Wisconsin and Kentucky. Uh, I think it was just similar. <laughs> they're not on his list, and they're not really talked about. And I think, I think – when you do stuff like that, even though it's a small pylon, I think when you pile stuff on there, you can um, you can definitely uh, you cause problems with other investigations without realizing it. Right, and I always um, I always try to be very careful about that. And you're right; I, I don't know. I always thought that that was strange uh, to be mentioned. And, you know, I thought it maybe at some point it was going to come up that he himself had stated it, right? Yeah. Because when you've got this, like, big confession type situation, you can give as much credence as you want to the the perpetrator saying, hey, I did this. But I feel like those are kind of out there as far as when you compare them to the consistency of the other cases that he confesses to now you're right as far as to my knowledge it's not that he said he didn't do it it's just that he didn't include it in uh at least one of the cases right yeah and you know you have to wonder about that uh did he just forget is it when you are looking at somebody who demonstrates this need for control to the extent that he demonstrated yeah. You have to wonder, like, there's an element of control that's going into even his 
you know, after he died, his post uh, death confession via his attorney, there's still going to be some control that he's trying to exercise. And I have a feeling like it was a struggle for him because there is some mercy in these confessions, right? And it, and he was a bad dude, right? He was a really bad guy killing all of these uh, young men like he did. But there's, so it's almost like, well, where was he going with this? Because here's this bad guy showing mercy, but possibly like withholding something, or there's going to be some element of this that if we could get inside of his head, we would realize oh, he's still holding the reins and keeping control because of whatever it is, right? Yeah, I mean, it could be as simple as I don't like that guy. Well, sure. I didn't, right. I didn't like I didn't like those three people, so I don't, you know, I had something against them, and they were obnoxious, so I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be telling anyone about them, I guess. Yeah, no, I agree. It could be anything, really. I just feel like... And there could be something that would change my mind. I just haven't seen it yet. I feel like clearly there's a sense of control there, uh, even just by making the list, right? Yeah. And maybe that was enough for him. I, I don't know. I would just be wary of sort of the situation. I didn't ever see where, like, he made confessions with those other states, what do you mean with those other states? Kentucky, Kentucky. and... Um, no, they're not in there. He didn't confess to them. So he's just considered a suspect. I get the feeling maybe... I could I could be convinced either way. I'm, I'm not necessarily saying it's piling on, but it could be. Because they just have a really similar homicide and they want to close it. I can't figure out why it came up, honestly. Well, okay. So let's talk about something for a second in terms of that, that came up in terms of this task force, which is working in contradiction to the, in terms of this other task force and how we got to Larry Eiler is important. We were on the I-70 Strangler and somehow ended up over on the, uh, uh, the, the highway murderer. Right. He's considered one of the most viable suspects to have been the I-70 Strangler. And I got to be honest, he makes no sense as the I-70 Strangler. Keeping in mind that there's, I would, uh, I presume a knife was used every single time. With Larry. With Larry, yes. Yeah. And there's going to be various elements that, because he, he killed a certain way, right? Yeah. So a lot of the I-70 Strangler cases, I don't see how they could possibly connect to him. I don't. They make no sense for him. We've we've only got one more suspect on our list. The next two episodes are about what ultimately sort of closes the I-70 Strangler case out. But I'm just going to go ahead and say this. I'm not sure it makes any more sense than this. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I feel like um, there's been a lot of effort, right? Uh, Trying to, because these were some of the, this was a very dark time, especially in retrospect. Like looking back on it from now, the fact that um, there's not been adjudication or even like concrete 
anything to have solved these, like, this never-ending list of heinous murders. Yeah. It's a little hard to digest, right? And so I do see where people grasp at straws and wonder. Um, And it's incredibly sad if you look at all of them. We did get off track, but I did think it was relevant to talk about that because this is how chaotic this time was. And we're 40 years out. Oh, yeah. We're we're way out from this. There's been a lot of hindsight applied here to get to the point where some of this is understandable. It's still, there's lots of questions laying around with these. And I thought that we could, uh, so, so next week, we're going to come back to like how the I-70 stranglings feel to law enforcement. And I want to, you know, I'm, I'm dying to know what you think of all that. I think I can, I think this will wrap up in the next two episodes because there's at least, I think there's one more murder and then there's, I think, I think there's one more episode about these murders and sort of where we're headed with this. And then there's a series of strange events surrounding it all. I think that's the best way to put it. Don't you? Sure. Yeah. We'll come back next week and take another look at the final suspect here. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. This is True Crime XS. All right, so I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show. And that code is CRIMEXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated it helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. And right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. 
whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners, and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Access will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality all-natural real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is, I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel. And he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy. So I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations, if you use TrueCrimeXS, that will get you, uh, at Laird will get you 15% off. At some of the other places, I'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. 
late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but... I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50-plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation, too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all-in-one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS, and it's time for you to share your story today.
Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras, and now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several new eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing, not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime Excess. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime Excess. You can also use the code True Crime Excess at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code True Crime Excess.